Hey, this is Melissa Green, and you are listening to Grace Point Church's podcast. Our vision statement at Grace Point is loving God, loving self, and loving others. If you want to find out more, visit gracepoint.net. Let's read a scripture, and I know you were just standing for an ovation, but if you could stand again, I'd like us to read this together. Matthew 21, this is one of the big text for the year in the Christian church. This is a big day, Palm Sunday, Sunday of the triumphal entry. So I want us to read this text together. Would you do that with me? Let's read it, read it out loud. All right, together now. Verse 1, when they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. God bless you. Thank you for doing that. You can be seated. If there were any question or questions in the minds of the disciples or even Jesus as to how he would be received in Passover-laden Jerusalem, you know what I mean by Passover-laden Jerusalem, the entire Jewish community turned their attention toward Jerusalem on this day, the day of the Passover. Many, many people from the diaspora, the children of the dispersion, dispersed Jews who lived out of Palestine, across Europe, North Africa, down into Central Africa, Arabia, to India, uh, beyond Mesopotamia, many of them would come in pilgrimage to Jerusalem at this particular time. Jerusalem was teeming with people. It was not only teeming with people, it was teeming with political intrigue. It was teeming with a growing tension in the direction of Jesus. See, Israel as a nation was a vassal nation. As a vassal nation, they were subjected to the empire that they were a part of. And that empire, of course, was the Roman Empire. Rome had learned from one of their predecessors, the Persian Empire, something called the Peace of the Empire. In Persia, it was Pax Persia. In Rome, it was Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And essentially, it meant this. In contrast to the empires that preceded them, Rome decided we will not subjugate. We will not enslave those people groups that we bring into the empire. Instead, we will ask them to be law-abiding, tax-paying, 
citizens of something larger than themselves. And if they will be good to that empire, the empire will be good to them. In other words, we'll live and let live. Part of that deal that Rome made, Persia began this, but part of the deal that that empire made with its vassal states was, we'll even allow you to retain much of your meaningful culture. Much of that meaningful culture would be religious in nature. Here's the deal. We will allow you to maintain some semblance of identity, significant identity, if you and yours will not threaten the peacefulness of our empire. If we hear anybody among you rising up as a rebel rouser, if we hear anyone with a pitched, feverish tone of nationalism rising up within your ranks, here's what we expect, because you're always going to have that party within your political community. Here's what we expect of you. You take care of them quickly and summarily, or we'll take care of you. So you keep peace, or we will force peace. Within the Jewish community, there was always a fringe, even a significant fringe, of Jewish people who believed that the promise made to Abraham demanded land, a significant amount of land, and there were many who believed the covenant made not just with Abraham and Moses but with the great King David was a covenant that demanded that Israel never be a vassal state but always be the dominant force and empire themselves. That fringe community within the time of Jesus was referred to as the zealots. Separatist communities that were always trying to foment a revolt. 160 years before Jesus was born, a family called the Hasmoneans followed one of its elite leaders, a fellow by the name of Judas Maccabeus, which meant Judas the Hammer, led a revolt against the Persian Seleucid kings and literally gained Israel's independence. Between Egypt, the Hittites, the Romans burgeoning, the Greeks, the Mesopotamians to the east, vast nations. In the midst of all of those nations, Israel reacquired national independence due the willingness to die of the zealots among them. It was called the Hasmonean dynasty. It was finally replaced by the Romans with a puppet king called Herod. But for 120 years, Israel had independence. There was always within Israel a fringe community. Some of them separated from the community, lived in the desert. Some of them stayed amongst the people. There was a group of them called the Sicari in the Galilee to the north that would often come down on Judea. Sicari meant dagger men. And they would often come down and perform executions. The executions were never against Romans. The executions were always of members of the Sanhedrin, the aristocracy of the Jewish community, that these feverish Jews felt like it sold them out. The Sanhedrin, which was the prevailing religious body, the religious congress of Israel, had made such peace with Rome that the leaders of the Sanhedrin wanted to keep things peaceful. You can hear this later this way. We are in Holy Week now. Holy Week is not something we reflect back on or remember as a historical event. Holy Week is something that we live every year as a Christian community. 
We are moving somewhere this Sunday until next Sunday. There are important days between. So we are reflecting on the nature of that week. On Friday of this week, the day of crucifixion, Jesus was brought before the religious Sanhedrin of the Jewish community. High priest, a high priest, called Jesus out before the multitude. In essence, saying we really don't want to kill this fella, but the logic is this. Listen to the high priest. The high priest said, here's the logic. Isn't it better for one of us to die than all of us to die? And we can satisfy Rome by putting down this guy who's beginning to lead what they thought was a grass movement's rebellion, coup d'etat. And so that's why Jesus was crucified in their mind because they were trying to satisfy Rome. We're going to keep peace. The disciples knew that that was the political climate in Jerusalem. And weeks before the incident that we just read, Jesus was in the Transjordan region across the Jordan over in a territory called Perea on the east side of what we now call the Dead Sea. And he was lying low there. He received word from friends of his that a dear friend of his was terminally ill named Lazarus. And the appeal was for him to go and to heal Lazarus in Bethany. Well, Bethany was two to three miles just outside of Jerusalem. When Jesus told his disciples that they would indeed go, his disciples argued with him. They said, Lord, it's too hot over there right now. If you go to raise Lazarus or if you go to heal Lazarus or raise him from the dead or whatever it is you're going to do, you're doing it and you're putting yourself in jeopardy. And by the way, all of us. Jesus went anyway. He went and he healed his friend Lazarus and over the next couple of weeks he went back and forth to that outpost in Perea until finally this particular day, Sunday, he told his disciples it's time to go to Jerusalem. Against their better judgment, he told them to go into the village and they would find a donkey there. He told them to bring that donkey to him and he was to ride it into the city. And so there must have been question in their, questions in their minds as to how he would re be received on this day. But all of those questions were summarily dispatched as this modest company with their leader on the back of a donkey, his toes dragging the ground as they pass the shoulder, and for those of you that have been there, you've walked this path, as they pass the shoulder of the great Olivet Hill, and they came around the corner, and there before them lay the city of David, majestically prone. As they looked down upon that city, they realized very quickly that that city's arms were open to them. As streaming forth from Jerusalem was a crowd of people, that crowd of people was shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord at the behest of God. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This was a direct quotation from Psalm 118. Please know Psalm 118 through Psalm 122, those five psalms were coronation psalms. Those were the psalms that the children of Israel sang as they take a new king up to the temple to coronate him and anoint him with oil. These were also the songs that they would sing when one of their kings would come back from a foreign land 
having won victory for Israel. This was a psalm that they had been singing for hundreds of years, a psalm of victory. Jesus had chosen to put himself on a donkey because he knew and he knew that they knew that Zechariah the prophet, the prophet who had pressed Israel to rebuild the second temple after the first one was destroyed, that prophet also sung a messianic song and he said, Behold, Jerusalem, your king will come to you riding on the back of a young donkey. Jesus knew what he was saying this day. His disciples knew what he was saying this day, and the people knew what he was saying. The very large crowd, as Matthew describes it, made their sentiments unmistakably clear. They knew Zechariah, they knew the Psalms, and they knew a king when they saw one. And they added to their very vocal adulation a veritable pavement of praise as they took off their outer robes, caught up in the frenzy of the moment, and Kenny, they threw their clothes down on the ground for that donkey to trod on. The reason, the reason for all of this feverish veneration, well, it was clear. He was their long-awaited king. He was the one, this one riding on the back of a donkey, who would restore them as a nation. He would restore them to the hyper-idealized golden years of the Davidic and Solomonic monarchy. When David and Solomon were king and all the nations, the queen from South Arabia, Sheba, came to see him because their glory had gone out. As they poured out of the city this day, there to celebrate the Jewish festival of Passover, as they poured out of the city, they praised him as their king. In their minds, he had the resume for it. Vouching for his resume were the Paschal, the Passover pilgrims from the Galilee to the north. That's where he had done the bulk of his ministry. They were there in the city that day, and when they heard that he was coming, they said, we have seen him raise the dead. We have seen him put political leaders and religious leaders in the palm of his hand and play them like fools. We have watched him walk on water. He has cleansed the leper. He's healed the blind eye. He has the resume. Another portion of that crowd was a group of people, John 11 said, who had been there in the weeks before this. They had seen Lazarus raised from the dead. Notice in the Lazarus chapter how it ends. Scripture said that many of the Jewish people who were there believed in him upon seeing his miracle. But many of those people immediately left the miracle of one raised from the dead and they made their way, John 11 says, to the chief priests and scribes and they reported him. Listen, from that moment, the religious leaders began to plot how they could bring him to trial and execute him. Into that mixed climate, Jesus rode this day. The Bible says those who had believed in him do the miracle of Lazarus, those from the Galilee who had seen him walk on water, they waved the palm branches. Surely this was the Messiah for whom they had pined. This was the king who would drop Rome to its knees and would finally usher in the kingdom of God. Gone would be the days that Israel was little more than a rag doll torn between the mouths of the surrounding empires. This was the one that they would hitch their wagon to. 
This was their political horse. This was the one who had their agenda at heart. This was the one who understood their life. This was the one who would make that life better. And yet, as Jesus, Antonio, rode that little donkey into town, he heard another strand. He heard another strand and those voices lifted in praise. He heard woven into that praise a hidden portent, a presage, a prophecy. He heard the pitch and the tone of betrayal. And within days he was, he was sure that what he had heard on that fateful Palm Sunday was indeed true. Somewhere between Sunday and Friday, their praises corrupted into curses. Somewhere between Sunday and Friday of this week, this is what we're journeying through. Somewhere between Sunday and Friday, they traded their palm branches in for whips. Somewhere between Sunday and Friday, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, turned into crucify him. The one that had been so filled with promise for them. The one who was so replete with the bound up hopes of a nation that fancied themselves the people of God. Somewhere between Sunday and Friday, almost immediately when he stepped off of that horse, they knew that he would step off of the horse and do something powerful, and indeed he did. He went straight into the temple and he kicked over the money changers' tables. And the zealots cheered and they gripped their daggers ready to go. But as he left that temple, there they stood waiting on him to say the word. There they stood waiting on red letters of fire to be written across the sky. There they stood waiting on the lightning bolts of heaven to descend. Angels should have been coming now. And yet as they turned their eyes waiting those things, they begin to watch him, by their estimation, pathetically misplay every hand that was dealt him in the next 72 hours. They watched him so missteward the opportunity he had, standing there with their palm branches ready to go. They watched him. They watched him until finally one from his own inner court. When people's, when politicians' campaign managers begin to abdicate. When people in the innermost circles of the cabinet begin to say, we're out. The crowd, Kenny, hears what's happening. They know that the folk on the inside know something that we don't know. And as they watch Judas walk away, they turn their back. They looked into one another's curious eyes and asked, where were the miracles? Where was the power? Where was the Maccabean courage of Judas the hammer only a century before? Where was the courage to stand for righteousness? At the very least, they looked at one another and said, where was that otherworldly wisdom that would shut the mouths of the leaders up, subvert their authority, and leave them punch drunk, 
equilibrium gone, holding on to the ring ropes as he walked away and the grass roots burgeoned. Even the unwitting and unwilling Roman prefect by the name of Pilate was incredulous. Even Pilate stood there looking at Jesus saying, I want nothing to do with this. Sending him off to Herod, the puppet king, when finally his hand was forced, his own wife, a non-Jewish woman, woman being inspired by a divine dream, whispering in his ears, don't you lay a hand to this man. His own wife saying, I can't sleep, I can't eat, something about him. Even that pilot looked at this broken and battered, passive king. And he curiously asked him, why doesn't your disciples, why don't you, miracle worker, why don't you, water walker, offer even a modicum of defense? And it was to that question, through the cracked, chapped, bloodied lips, it was to that question that Jesus granted some insight, insight that heretofore he in countless ways had tried to impart, but they had missed it. And Jesus whispered, my kingdom is not of this world. Brothers and sisters, listen to our Lord. Those of us who are wont to make him into our king, those of us who are wont to conscript him for our causes, those of us, all of us. As my uncle used to say, well, I'll tell you, that's not what my Lord would do. I heard him say it all my life. Finally, John, I got to thinking one day, does he have a different Lord than I do? Anybody ever heard people say that? Well, my God wouldn't do that kind of a thing. And you know, the truth of the matter is, no, they wouldn't. Your God wouldn't because your God generally looks just about like you and your causes and your needs and your desires. My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom, he raised his eyes, those olive eyes so piercing the window of God's soul. If my kingdom were from this world, he whispered, my followers would be fighting. But my kingdom is not from here. And there it is. The palm branch waving crowd misunderstood the triumphantly arriving king, listen, because it fatally misunderstood the kingdom he had come to establish. If you misunderstand the kingdom, you're going to misunderstand the king. If you misunderstand the motive, you're going to misunderstand the action. If you misunderstand the driving force, you're going to misunderstand everything that your Messiah does. You see, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day, please hear me, they were praising an illusion on that fateful day. No doubt there have been many songs sung, many hymns sung, many creeds recited to illusions. The Apostle Paul told the church at Corinth, who was not taking care of its poor adequately, he said, when you gather, you gather for no good. It would be better for you not even to take the Lord's Supper in light of how you're taking it. They were praising an illusion 
on that fateful day. They were praising a king whose job description was constructed by their own desires and misdirected notions. And we always have the tendency to pick the king that is willing to feed us. But on that day, they were lauding a king who was constructed by their own desires. Morphing a cliched admonition from the great ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ, many of you heard it. Campus Crusaders used to often say to you, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Remember that? Well, on this day, they loved God and had a wonderful plan for his life. But Jesus would have none of it. Listen, Jesus would have none of it. Jesus would have none of it for their sake and for ours. Unless we paint the palm wavers as alone in their ill-fated attempt at a misguided coronation of Jesus, we should point out that they were in good company as company goes. This idea of a misguided coronation, of making God be who we want Him to be, the stories of those who made that very mistake weave their way thickly through the four Gospels. You remember how after feeding the 5,000, you remember that moment? Jesus is on the ground there with 5,000, 10, 12,000 people, including women and children. And the Bible tells us he took a little boy's basket of fishes and loaves, Bill, and the people ate and ate and ate. And when it was all said and done, they gathered up basketfuls. The Bible tells us that with full bellies, we always respond to those who make our bellies full. For those who take care of our life, assuming that our life is the only kind of life lived within the community. Our cause is the only cause in the community. With full bellies, they lean back. And the Bible says, quote, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Did you hear that? Stan Busky, they were about to come and take him by force to make him be king. Can you imagine that? They were not even going to give him opportunity to turn down the nomination. They saw their guy that could do their deal. And the Bible says without even consulting him, they whispered among themselves and said, how can we abduct him, put him in our chains, ingratiate ourselves to him, engender his commitment, and make him be our king? The Bible tells us even more amazing that instead of running to that and saying, I heard somebody wanted me to run, the Bible says when he heard that, he withdrew to the mountain. And the Bible says he went to the mountain to be alone to escape their desire to make him king. Even those closest to him, his 12 most intimate disciples were party to the imprudence. After making the famous declaration at Caesarea Philippi, a fellow by the name of Simon Peter with the disciples, they were asked by Jesus, who do men say that I am? 
And then the second question, who do you say that I am? Oh, that's an important question. You hear in that the tone of who do you want me to be? What kind of Messiah would you like me to be? What kind of a God do you want to describe as my Lord and my God? Who do you say that I am? The Bible says Simon Peter was that annoying guy in the back of the class that always raised his hand and had the answer. You remember him? He raised his hand and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus looked at him and said, You have well said, Simon. I'll no longer call you Simon. I'll call you Peter. And upon this rock we'll build this church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Simon missed that last part, stuck his thumbs in his lapel, his chest blew out. And in an amazing act of hubris, as he heard the Lord immediately begin to describe, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And immediately he began to show them how he must needs go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and die. And so filled with this rare hubris, when Simon Peter heard Jesus, oh, when Jesus said, you're a rock, gates of hell won't prevail, we're going to build the church, Simon reached for a palm branch somewhere. But when Jesus said, I must needs go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, he dropped his palm branch, Mac, and the Bible says that this is uncanny. He looked at Jesus and rebuked him. Oh, and sometimes what we call prayer is actually rebuking God, isn't it? Telling him how he ought to run his kingdom, telling, who, telling him, Paul, who he should have been and what he needs to do if he would just listen to us. Prayer, you know, is that time when God listens to us and finds wisdom on what he's supposed to do with his kingdom. Simon Peter rebuked him because Simon Peter could not fathom a king who would suffer and die. This was the same disciple who on the eve of Jesus' death would initially refuse to allow Jesus to wash his feet. He's going to be crucified tomorrow. John 13 says when he knew, Stephen, that all power was given in his hands, he took off his outer robe, put a towel on, looked up in the face of Judas and said, your feet, son. And those stinking human feet that would trot a trail of betrayal stuck straight out and Jesus washed between his toes. And Simon watched it with growing consternation. And when Jesus came to Simon in a feigned act of humility, Simon shifted his feet and said, no, 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 no. And Jesus looked at him knowing that this was not humility. This was Simon saying, I don't want a king who washes feet. Because if I have a king who washes feet, then this is a kingdom of foot washers. And I was hoping for secretary of state, not chief foot washer. And Jesus looked at him and said, you misunderstand my kingdom. And if you don't give me your feet, and begrudgingly, Simon allowed him his feet. With their feet still wet, James and John were dabbing off those feet with the towel, and their own mother 
extended family now got in the fray as their mother come up. What an embarrassing moment. Anybody ever been there on the ball field when your mom comes down and starts getting into it with the umpire? It's just the most awful, humiliating moment for an 11-year-old kid. And here James and John are drying their feet, and their motherly comes up and says, Hey, when you come into your kingdom, put one of my boys on your right hand and the other on your left hand. And Jesus shook his head and said, when I come into my kingdom, Wendy, he told him, when I come into my kingdom, dispense with the scepter, lay down the crown, find yourself a towel and a basin, and live at the feet of other people. Within hours of this ludicrous exchange, Jesus would have to rebuke Simon Peter again, this time demanding that he put away his swords only seconds after he'd gone for the head of one of Jesus' abductors. With their feet still wet from the washing, Jesus said, go with me. And in the garden, he prayed until great drops of blood fell. So removed were they from this passion that they slept until finally they were arrested by a coming crowd, a company of soldiers, a throng of people, a lynch mob came. If we understand the Greek right, it was probably some three to four hundred people, and the Bible said they had swords and spears. Swords and spears in the hands of three hundred people, some of them trained professionals, and the Bible says, listen to it now, this is Palm Sunday, this is Holy Week we're heading into, we'll get to Easter soon enough. But the Bible says back to back, James, Peter, and John stood in a triangulation of Courage, stiffening their backs, perhaps with Jesus, the one that was weaponless, standing between them. Simon, perhaps a sicary himself, drew his sword and lunged into the crowd of three to four hundred men, going for the head of the first one he came across. The man named Malchus dodged, and the sword lopped off his ear when it fell to the ground. Simon screaming, it's on! Simon, milliseconds from dying. And Jesus screams, stop it! And with a hundred swords drawn around Simon and Simon standing ready to go, Simon knowing that his king would say, go! This was the time when angels would descend on white horses. This was the apocalyptic kingdom. You think we have a biblical text to interpret? They had one 1,400 years old. They knew how this was going to happen. Lightning bolts and thunder. Animals from the woods. This was their king. And with swords unsheathed, he screams, stop. And as both sides pause, he whispers, Put your sword up, Simon. If you live by it, you are about to die by it because I have nothing to do with it. And Simon grips his sword, clenches his teeth. And the men sheathed their swords because they had been told to bring him alive and they take Jesus 
And James and John think sons of thunder. They think surely this is the Samson moment when he's going to throw them off, grab a jawbone of a donkey somewhere. But instead, his shoulders slump. And they start slapping him across the face. And Simon's teeth grind. Even the one who had just kissed him. You say, well, Judas was such a louse that he had 30 pieces of silver in his pocket. Now he was going to go off somewhere and build himself a Mediterranean villa. No. As Judas watched him battered and bruised, slap back and forth. The Bible says that Judas, watching that battered visage, inside his heart he must have been saying, come on, you're not going to take that, are you? It was not betrayal that Judas intended most likely. You say, oh yeah, he just wanted the money. No, he didn't. Within moments, he took the money back, threw it at the men's feet and said, that's blood money. I don't want it. Never did. But our guy wouldn't listen to us, so we had to stoke the enemy. We just thought if we couldn't instigate him a few slaps from you, and he would exert himself. And when he didn't, Judas didn't go off and build himself that villa. He threw the money down, wrapped a rope around his neck in despair because Jesus was not the God he wanted him to be. Equally mistaken but mercifully received was one of the malefactors suspended beside the crucified Lord. For years, we've all been saying that fellow asked Jesus for forgiveness and was forgiven. That's not what the story says. Even the fellow hanging beside him on the cross mistook the kingdom, Sharon. The fellow beside him didn't say, would you forgive me for all of my debauchery? The fellow hanging beside him said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him because he's gracious with misunderstanding or we wouldn't be here. And Jesus said, I'll remember you. And by the way, your mind will be blown <laughs> because it's not what you think. Time fails me now to list all of those who took part in this campaign for a king. Listen, who took part in this king, in this campaign for a king of their own shaping. Maybe one final episode would summarize this sentiment that has been recurring from then until now. You see, Holy Week is not a week where we celebrate next Sunday people 2,000 years ago who met a resurrected Christ. Next week we celebrate the resurrected Christ with them because this is a communion of saints. But on Good Friday and Palm Sunday and Ash Wednesday, we are reminded this is not only a communion of saints, we are a communion of sinners. And in this admixture of Satan sinner, Dave, there's much to learn from Palm Sunday for me. He had risen from the grave, and his disciples were on the road to Emmaus lamenting that Jesus was gone. When finally the resurrected Lord came between them, the Bible said strangely he was hidden from their recognition. They were talking to Jesus 
lamenting the absence of Jesus, and they said, listen to the misunderstanding, they said, we thought this was he who would redeem Israel. And Jesus' heart must have stirred, Dave, because he was indeed going to redeem Israel and the world. But their definition of redemption was different than his. We thought this was he who would redeem Israel, but a crucified miracle worker holds no potential for us, and according to our definition of redemption, Jesus has nothing left to offer for us. It is a sad thing for me when I watch people, Lucy, end up disappointed with Jesus in one chapter of life, and they decide the whole book was ill-written. One disappointment with Jesus, and now he has nothing left to offer. And yet as blind as they were on the road, they were just that blind to the definitions of redemption and salvation, king and kingdom that were his. He would redeem Israel, just not as they had supposed. The Bible said it was shortly thereafter that he gathered his disciples. And the Bible said gathering them in post-resurrected form, he performed no miracle because that was not the problem. As a matter of fact, the miracles were a part of the problem. Why did he do them so discriminately? Why so whimsically? Why the caprice with the power? The Bible says he gathered with them their sad eyes, forlorn hearts, and then opened he the scripture that they might understand. 1,400 years of biblical tradition, and they didn't understand. Next Sunday is a Sunday of hope and faith. This Sunday is a Sunday where another virtue is lauded, and that is the virtue of humility. For on this day, those closest to him realized that there was the possibility of following Jesus and yet getting it tragically and terribly wrong. Palm Sunday is a day when we reflect back on the history of the church and realize that we are not a perfect group, we are not a perfect people. We have been trying to cut people's heads off for all the wrong reasons for a long time. Palm Sunday is a Sunday that calls us to humility. And so we return finally to those who received Jesus into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. Those who not only thought they knew what God was doing, but those who were absolutely sure through their perception of Scripture that they knew how He was doing it. Oh, the arrogance of us all. Not only were they joined by many of their contemporaries in their wide mist, but they were joined by many of us in this communion of sinners. By all of us. Oh, the best laid plans of mice and men, plans for ourselves and plans for our Jesus and plans for our God. Palm Sunday is the day as we head toward the resurrection that God speaks to all of us palm branch wavers who have it figured out only to find out we don't. God speaks to us and He appeals to us for humility and for trust. He reminds us that he never came into this world with sword of flashing. He reminds us that he came into this world and stood on mountains and said, Hear me, blessed are the peacemakers, 
for theirs is the kingdom of God. He stood on a mountain and said, hear me please, blessed are the meek and the humble, for they will inherit the earth. This is a day when we are reminded there is no need to put down our palm branches or remove our coats from the road. No, no, no. I I am not making a mockery out of palm branches or praise. This is not a day to put those palm branches up, but this is a day to put down our assumptions, our presumptions, our preconceived notions, our arrogant constricting theologies that cause us to go against the head of those that Jesus is committed to heal. We fight Clyde and cut the ears off of people that Jesus summarily shows love for and heals. We win victories for him that he doesn't want. Palm Sunday is a day to put down our stubborn insistence and our unremitting effort to conform Jesus into the image of the God we want him to be as opposed to the saving reverse of allowing him to conform us into his image. On that first Palm Sunday, those who lined the streets made a seemingly innocent yet tragic mistake that we still have a tendency to make all these years later. They lined the streets that day, listen, inviting Jesus into their city, into their lives, and into their kingdom that they expected him to call his. And 2,000 years later, we are still making that same misstep, narrowing our idea of salvation down to an invitation that invites Jesus into our life. We are not teaching our children to invite Jesus into their life. No, something far greater. We are letting them, Terry, hear Jesus invite them into his life. And that call was always the same. To our five-year-olds, Martin, and to our 50-year-olds, the call of Jesus of salvation in the kingdom was, will you follow me? And yet again and again, Sherry, we call him to follow us into our agendas, our plans, those places that feed us. We invite him into our hearts. Even more, we invite him into our pocketbook and our belly. We hire kings, we make them be kings, those that we think will take care of our cause. But the reality is all this time later, he never would be and he never will be made king by any of us. I cannot make him king today because you can't make somebody king who is already king. And he is king of kings and Lord of Lords. And the journey of salvation, of redemption, is a journey of recognition and a journey of submission to that kingship. And I just want to say, as Anna comes today to sing a final song of benediction over you, for those of you today on this Palm Sunday who are illusioned by your designs on God, 
Please be careful with the illusions you have and the designs you have for God because you are bound to end up disillusioned when those designs fail. When he does not become your Lord, when he is not my God, when God fails to meet your illusion, it's a very dangerous thing. A lot can happen between Sunday and Friday when you have illusions and designs on God. Whips can replace palm branches and hosannas can decline to crucify him when God doesn't meet your expectation. Palm Sunday is the day when the Christian church is reminded that if you are following a mysterious and a vast God, an ever-attending part of that fellowship will be, he will be ever-growing and revealing he will never change, but your perception of him and understanding will grow. And that process will be very difficult because the one, Mike, that you are willing to throw your coat on the ground and wave a palm branch on, when he turns just a hair and does not become what you want him to become, if you're not careful, you'll make the fatal mistake that they made, and that is if he will not be my king, then he will be no king. And I simply want to say to you today, when your theology dies, it doesn't mean you have to crucify Jesus. When your theology is confronted by a resurrected Lord who opens your arrogant mind and says, I know you thought you've had the answer a long time, but I say unto you, when your theology dies, you can be like those who yell crucify him or you can be like the women who went to the tomb not looking for a resurrected Christ but looking for a dead man whom they loved the Bible says the resurrected Lord showed himself to two women who say he may not have turned out to be what we thought he was going to be but we are still drawn to him and love him and with spices and perfume in their hand testifying to their faithlessness in his resurrection they stood there that day faithfully tending to someone they loved yet horribly misunderstood and Jesus said that kind of faith will do just fine for me and he showed himself alive the first time to those desperately confused women when your theology dies you don't have to crucify him when your theology is confronted, you don't have to abandon spirituality, religion, theism. You don't have to abandon Christianity or Jesus. Palm Sunday is the day when we remember that periodically our King comes and reframes himself. And you can be sure of one thing, with all the disappointments your wrecked theology leaves you, he would not have wrecked it if he didn't have something better coming. His redemption and his kingship and his kingdom is better than we could ever concoct. Can you say amen? As we head into Holy Week, they could have never imagined 
how disappointing he would be. They could have never imagined the gospel and the kingdom would go through this. On behalf of him, to all of those who have been disappointed by Jesus, all of you who've been disappointed by your religion, your Christianity, all of you for whom this hasn't turned out the way you planned. In this holy week, journey with your disappointments. Crucify him not. Don't throw him away because he simply has not been what you expected him to be. Bear with him. Palm Sunday calls us. Refrain from Friday. Bear with him as he's laid in the tomb. Show up on that morning. His kingdom will be built. His kingdom will come. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but all disappointments and tears will be wiped away. Bear with him, sweet Christian. Bear those disappointments. Bear them this holy week. This is why we gather on Palm Sunday. Let's pray together now. Lord, crucified God, disappointed and disappointing one, may we bear humbly and trustingly as the women who made their way to the sealed tomb. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that Palm Sunday is not just the day when the little kids sing and make palm branches, but there is a layer of meaning for us saints and sinners gathered here. Help us journey carefully through this week of foot washing Thursday and whipping post Friday. Silent Saturday. Bring us again, Lord, with our heads turned upward. Disappoint, disappointments resolving. Heal us and our enemies, Lord, as we put our swords of certainty and arrogance back in their sheath. Reveal yourself anew to us in this holy week until we come to that great resurrection morn next week. Heal us lovingly in the process. Sweet Christ, we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.